Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the Opus, Season 9, Episode 2. Brought by Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy Recordings. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. And what you're listening to right now is Mob Deep's most famous song, and one of the most important East Coast rap songs of all time, Shook Ones Part 2. Oh, wait. You don't hear it? Oh. Well. well let me run it back. Let's see if this feels familiar. Okay. Here we go. How about then? Did you hear it? To all the killers and the hundred dollar bills? You didn't catch it, did you? That's okay. A lot of people didn't. In fact, even with thousands of ears trained in listening, it took 16 years before anybody finally heard it. I, 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 was, I, I couldn't believe it took them that long. But then again... You've been flip the hell out of that sample, man. <laughs> you know what? I was kind of surprised that they figured it out, to be honest with you. That, of course, is a voice you recognize from episode one. That's Havoc from Mob Deep. And what we're listening to at the top of the episode, of course, is not technically Mob Deep's Shook Ones Part 2, but it is, in fact, a composition by Herbie Hancock called Jessica of his album Fat Albert Rotunda, which, in case you're wondering, just a fun fact, is an album that Hancock made up of pieces that he composed for the animated TV series Found Albert, and hidden in that pretty little piano piece, I promise you, is the melody line that Havoc sampled to make the legendary Shook Ones Part 2 beat. I swear, it's there. I'll prove it to you. Just listen. Okay, so, you remember this from the top of the episode? Great. Now, we're going to take that little piano piece from the start of the episode, and we're going to loop a little part of it. Hear that? It's an awkward little loop, I know, but stick with me. We're getting warmer. So we're going to take that loop, and we're going to pitch it down 14 semitones. If you don't know what a semitone is, don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter, but just think of them as steps. We just went down 14 steps, and we're going to take that, and we're going to set it aside 
Just keep it in your mind, and then we're gonna walk it a few steps back up. Till we're at negative nine semitones. So, five steps higher than we were, but still nine steps below the original sample. Now, if you know Shook Ones Part Two, this little Herbie Hancock piece is starting to sound a little bit more like Mob Deep and a little less like Fat Albert, because we're close, but we're not there yet. Because now you have to take that first pitch down piece, that 14 semitones down piece, and put it together with the nine semitones down piece. That sounds like Shook One's part two. Now we're there. Just to EQ some of those high ends, I'll get rid of some of that hiss. And run it through a little bit of a filter. <sighs> then you just add some drums, man. And now, you have Mob Deep's Shook One's part two. I got you stuck off the realness. You heard of us, official Queensbridge murderers. The mob comes equipped for warfare. Beware of my crime family who got enough shots to share for all those who want to profile and pose. Rock you in your face, stab your brain with your nose bone. You all alone in these streets, cousin. Every man for themselves in his land, we be gunning. And keep them shook crews running like they supposed to. They come around, but they never come close to. I can see it inside your face, you're in the wrong place. Cowards like you just get their whole body laced up. And that is how having made the melody line for one of the most influential, recognizable, and timeless rap beats ever. But if we were making this podcast for the 15th anniversary of the infamous, instead of the 25th, this would be an entirely different story. Because at that point, even a full 15 years after the release, still, no one knew how Havoc made this legendary beat. And that's a big deal in rap music. Because you can't talk about the history of rap music without the history of sampling and sample spotting. When we talk about the golden age of hip-hop, a lot of what we're talking about musically is the age of sample-based production. This is Oliver Wang. Dr. Oliver Wang, technically. He's a professor at CSU Long Beach, and he's a cultural writer who's been published everywhere from The Source, Spin, Mother Jones, NPR. He's also a DJ, host of a great music podcast of his own called Heat Rocks, and the guy who broke the story of the Shook Ones sample being discovered in an article for the LA Times back in 2011. People are looking through old records, they're finding breaks and loops and other snippets to use in their songs, and this really, I think, begins to hit a kind of fever pitch by the early to mid-1990s. And even though sampling goes back way into the 1980s, that's when you first begin to see commercial samplers being sold and, and purchased and used. But a lot of early hip-hop sampling, so we're talking mid-late 80s, is drawing from catalogs of people like James Brown and Parliament Funkadelic. So songs that a lot of people would have already known. It wasn't like it was a big secret using something like The Funky Drummer by James Brown in a song. But by the early 90s, this begins to shift, partly because there is kind of a sample arms race happening amongst hip-hop producers to be the first to use a sample that no one's ever used before. It's a way of keeping the music fresh. Similar to kind of how DJs um, in the South Bronx in the 1970s used to hide their labels so that other competing DJs wouldn't know what songs they were playing. 
this is that similar kind of competitive ethos, which is that I'm going to flip something that no one else has flipped before, and I don't want you to know what those things are. So I think there's always been, at least since this what I describe as the digging in the crates era of sampling, which begins in the early 90s, there has been a lot of both secrets and then exploration of those secrets. It's a very cat and mouse dynamic between the people who are doing the sampling and then everyone else, whether it's other producers. But in many cases, it's really, I think, the fans and record collectors and DJs who are trying to figure out, okay, what is it that Pete Rock is using? What did DJ Premier flip? And so... This is where I think partly the culture around uh, what people have described as sample spotting is is where it began, is to just figure out, all right, what did my favorite artist use for this incredible song? I know it's a sample. I just don't know what it is. So out of the culture of sample-based music, a subculture of sample sleuths are born. But this isn't unique to sample-based music or rap music. It's the same as guitarists who hide their pedal boards to keep their sound secret. And the hordes of guitar nerds who work to peer into those boards to glean how their favorite guitarist gets that tone. I don't really even play guitar, but I remember making sure I was one of the first people through the door for a Mogwai concert when I was in high school so I could be in the front row to see all of their pedals and how they use them to get that sound. Sound engineers for every genre like this, notoriously protective of their secrets and notoriously proud of them. I mean, think of the way Roy Halley insisted on recording Simon and Garfunkel from our season on Bridge Over Trouble Water. Both voices at the same time for the main track. Each one backs up their own voice separately on new tracks. You know, if you make something people love, and how you did it is a trade secret, there will always be people there with their ear to the door of your vault trying to crack it. Once the internet came into play in terms of how sample knowledge was being exchanged, and this goes back probably at least about 20 years, maybe a little bit longer than that, because you have these early message boards in which people are exchanging all of this this knowledge and information. And partly because of that, a lot of samples that had previously gone relatively unknown I think really within just a span of a few years, all of this knowledge gets opened up and all this stuff is being shared. And now it's all out there. It used to be that you would have to like go to record stores and listen to the records and track this stuff down yourself, or you had to have a phone conversation with someone to figure this out or meet up with people in in person. And now all this knowledge is available at your, your fingertips, right? What makes Shook One so special is two things is number one this is one of the greatest songs recorded in the 1990s people might have their favorites in terms of their favorite mob deep song but i don't think anyone could argue there's a more important song to this group's career than shook one's part two so you have this song that has massive importance within hip-hop and then nobody knows what did havoc use And this goes by for over 15 years, despite the fact that seemingly every other sample on the planet has been discovered and exists on all of these different sites. And somehow this has gone elusive. And I think the longer the Shook Ones 2 sample went unknown, the more the legend around it grew because it just seemed inconceivable that with the power of global knowledge, right, how is it that we don't know what this is? I mean, there's got to be countless songs out there that people don't know what the sample is for. A lot of records in the world, right? A lot of songs have been made that use samples. 
But again, it's not like we're talking about some obscure B-side from a group that no one's ever heard of. Shook Ones 2 opens Eminem's 8 Mile. It's the very first thing you hear in that film. So this is like a song of immense magnitude. And yet the fact that we don't know where does the main baseline come from, and we didn't know this for, for years and years, I think it's really, it makes this song very unique in the history of sample sleuthing. Shook One's Part 2 was a lead single for The Infamous. And though it got its official release in February 1995, it had hit the streets of New York the year before, thanks to legendary radio DJ Stretch and Bobbito giving it airtime as soon as they got it in their hands. Because they knew what they had. And from that moment, the hunt was on. And it never stopped. Even if the internet had consolidated all that sample spotting knowledge on sites like The Breaks and Soul Strut and Almost every classic sample in hip-hop had been unearthed. It was still a full 17 years before someone discovered what was making that weird bass, piano, unnameable sound. I mean, Bill Clinton was in the first term of his presidency when this song came out, and Barack Obama was starting to run for re-election by the time someone finally figured out what Havoc had sampled to make this beat. You can look at the archives of those sites and those forums and you see tons of people posting what they thought it was, only to have them all shot down. People would ask Havoc all the time and he kept his lips sealed. And then one day, 2011, a record collector in Germany named Timon Heinke, a.k.a. Bronco, on thebreaks.com, was listening to this. And somehow heard this. Which is unreal. I mean, even after knowing how it's made, I still have a hard time hearing it. So I have no idea how Bronco caught that. But he did. And he then put his findings up on thebreaks.com. Shortly thereafter, another German... Falk Schacht, a.k.a. Hawkeye, put it to the test, realized it was correct. He created that audio step-by-step guide you heard at the top of the show to prove it. By the way, thanks, Falk, for letting me use that. Oliver wrote his piece in the LA Times, have it confirmed it, and the rest is history. I was surprised, because I was like, nobody's not going to you know, figure that out. We're back with Havoc from Mob Deep. I mean, it's like a really small, a quick sample and I, I guess people was breaking their heads for years, like, man, what fucking sample is this? And <laughs> it's like, what the fuck was he thinking? Like, you know what I mean? You know, some other producer probably would have just sampled it straight away, or maybe not even sampled it at all. You know what I mean? And um, I, I think that kind of, you know, when you hear stuff like that, even though music is done a little bit differently today, if, you know, some aspiring producer listens to that story and listens to the sample and see how it ended up, it would make him creative in some other kind of way. You know what I mean? It's just a good story. It is a good story. And as a person who makes beats, I do find it very inspiring. But it is more than that. Because it's the two things that make this sample so hard to spot, that make this song so important in telling the story of Mob Deep and the Infamous. Because this isn't some rare record that have sampled. This isn't some limited run, 45, from some unknown funk band from Texarkana, Texas. This is the kind of record you might find in your uncle's record collection. 
because Havoc found this in his uncle's record collection, which is where Havoc got a lot of the records from that he used to make the infamous. So while every sample spotter and record collector was racking their brains, combing over rare German psych rock records, looking for the loop that he used to make shook ones, it was hiding in plain sight the whole time, probably in the dollar bin. The truth is that Hav didn't have a lot of records like the super producers and the super DJs he was in a category with. This is Mad Life a.k.a. Matty C. He's the other executive producer slash A&R on this record, along with Scott Free, who we heard in the first episode. He's responsible for helping a ton of rappers get their start. He created the legendary unsigned hype column for The Source, where he would shine a spotlight on up-and-coming artists like DMX, Common, Notorious B.I.G., and a little group called The Poetical Prophets that later would change their name to Mob Deep. He's been there since the beginning. It was in the studio when Shook One's Part 2 came together. So it makes have even greater, like even compared to Rizzo, but definitely compared to a Pete Rock or a Primo or a Large Professor. Like, no, no, Hav didn't have a million records and a thousand loops you've never heard before. He had to take the same 20 records that his Uncle T brought to the studio, all fucked up and scratched up, and figure out how to make a beat out of it. Just multi-pitching sounds and and, 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 and freaking shit was genius. It was just genius. It was just have just like, fuck it, we'll work with this. And, you know, his Uncle T brought records through a lot of the time. And if you went to his crib, he had records all over the place. But he didn't have thousands of crates. He didn't have walls of records, you know, like the big name producers. He was just talented, had an incredible ear, and was more creative with less. And this is why I had to tell that whole story of that sample. This is what makes the infamous so incredible. There's an urgency to this record. Not just to the feel or the tone or even the content. To the way it was actually made. This is that undefinable thing that makes great rap music so powerful. This is the gear we have. These are the records I can sample from. Fuck it. We'll make it work. Because we have to. The life they lived, the place they're from, Queensbridge, it made them resourceful and innovative just to survive. They'd spent their whole life making the most from the least, you know? I mean, this is the same thing that makes punk music or the blues or country music great, right? What is it they always say about all three of those genres? All it takes is three chords and the truth. Three chords and the truth. With rap music, it's the same thing. Maybe it's three samples and the truth, but it's the same thing. And we know the truth is there in this music from the first episode. Now we see that the same drive that produces great punk and country and the blues is right there too. Because like The Clash or Willie Nelson or Robert Johnson, Prodigy and Havoc had something inside them that they had to get out. They had a story to tell and they were going to tell it. With whatever gear they could lay their hands on. Sunny shook, cause ain't no such things as halfway crooks. Scared to death and scared to look. They shook, cause ain't no such things as halfway crooks. Scared to death and scared to look. Living the life that is diamonds and guns. There's numerous ways you can choose to earn funds. Some get shot, locked down, and turn nuns. Cowardly hearts and straight up shook ones. Shook ones. Hey, the crooks, son. 
For great artists, the motivation never comes from just one place. Sure, Mom Deep had this desire burning inside of them. They had that drive. But there was something else that was motivating them too. Something that will sound very familiar to regular listeners of this podcast. Because we talked about this with Miles Davis and Simon and Garfunkel. Competition. Yeah. Now, it is accepted law of the Opus podcast series that creative competition is not just a good thing, it is a great thing. Miles saw what rock musicians and folk musicians were doing in the late 60s, and he thought, shit, I can do this better than them. And so he made bitches brew. Simon and Garfunkel saw all the artistic acclaim that was being heaped on the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and so they made Bridge Over Troubled Water to prove that they weren't just folk singers with pretty voices, they were artists. And for Mom Deep, they didn't have to look far. Because incredible as this may seem, their competition wasn't coming from some far off place. It was coming from the same block, from the same project buildings. Because in the years before Mob Deep would make the infamous, something else happened in Queensbridge. Nasir Jones happened. Nas. This is, of course, executive producer Maddie C. And what he's talking about is the other classic album that came out of Queensbridge one year earlier in 1994. And the series of singles leading up to it that started coming out in 1992 and turned their neighbor into the rapper on everybody's radio and boombox. Nas. And his debut album, Illmatic. She started popping... And all of a sudden, the whole hood was revived, you know? The untold stories of what happened in Queensbridge for those few years on a hip-hop level was a lot of talk about Nas. And that put a fire in P's ass as a writer, as an artist, as an MC. In order to really understand the size of that fire in Prodigy and Havoc, in order to really get the pressure that they felt, you have to go back a little bit before the infamous and before Illmatic to a record called Juvenile Hill, Mob Deep's first record. Now, Juvenile Hill isn't a bad record, but the title is like kind of ironically fitting. It just sounds juvenile. When you listen to that after you hear the infamous, it's kind of hard to believe that they were made by the same group of people. When they started working on that record, Early in 1992, a few months before Nas's first single, Halftime, was released. They had a lot of the same great producers that Nas worked with on Illmatic. But by the time Juvenile Hell came out, it was clear that they had been outmatched by their fellow Queensbridge resident. Because when they came back to Queensbridge, nobody was playing their shit. And everybody was playing Nas. Even when Mob Deep was at a record store doing an album signing, the record store wasn't even playing Juvenile Hell they were playing Nas. Juvenile Hell only sold 20,000 copies, which, for the time, was a total failure. They got dropped from their contract. Just as quick as it all started, it seemed like it might be over. Can you imagine what they must have felt like? I mean, you're a kid. A young teenager, growing up in the hood. You finally get a record deal. And you're working with all the best producers and you got a budget and you're going to real studios to make a real record and you come back and some other kid from the building around your corner has just trumped your whole shit. For most people, this would crush them. You know, especially if you're that young. But this, this is what makes Mob Deep so special. 
because they're not made from the same stuff you and I are made of. They've been dealing with adversity and setbacks the whole life. So this competition, it didn't crush them. It propelled them forward. It put them right back to work. Well, there was definitely a competitiveness in the air, right? We're back with Havoc from Mob Deep again. We're talking about 1994 with the likes of Nas with Illmatic, Wu-Tang Clan with the 36 Chambers, Biggie Smalls. So if you wanted to land amongst that group as uh, you know, a force to be reckoned with, there had to be a little competitiveness there. So we definitely was, you know, looking at that like, man, you know, we want to be as good as them. And we also was being competitive against ourselves coming off of an album that didn't do so good. It was pretty much of a letdown. So now it's like, you know, we competing against ourselves to do better. So they get back to work, and they start pushing themselves further. Havoc starts diving deeper into the production because they're tired of waiting on other producers to try to get them the beats that they wanted. And Prodigy stops trying to follow formulas and write songs for the radio or the club or the ladies to fit some market-tested record label rubric of what sells. His flow slows down, and he starts speaking from his life and his heart. What comes from that is a rough little demo called Patty Shop. It's not on the infamous. Never even got an official release, but you can listen to it on YouTube. Look it up. It's Patty with two Ds. And it isn't a great song, but there's something there. Because in it, you can hear the birth of the infamous. And a clear shot at their competition, Nas. And what was the demo that they were rhyming over when they brought it to me? Halftime drums. You know what I mean? They made a demo off of fucking Nas's first single. We're back with Maddie C. And I love this. I love this shit. They get trumped by Nas. What do they do? What do they use to make their first single to mark their reinvention, to mark their return? They jack the drums from Nas's first single, Halftime, the song that blew him up. And they make their own song out of it, Patty Shop. I love this. They make this song. They take it to Maddie C. Maddie C passes it off to Stretch Armstrong of the world famous Stretch and Bobito radio show. They start playing it on the radio. And like that, Mom Deep's destiny begins to change. The most important thing about Patty Shop and what motivated them to bring Patty Shop to me, I know it. And what motivated me to go to Stretch was Nas. Nas may have started it, but it all turned with Patty Shop. From that point on, you could just chart Mob Deep's exponential growth because they kept working and pushing themselves. After that, they made a song called Shook Ones, which is the precursor to Shook Ones 2 that we focused on for the first half of the show. And that's better than Patty Shop, but it's still not there yet. And they get some radio play, and their stock keeps rising. And at that point, they're making demos left and right. The demos that would later become the songs that would become the infamous. And like that... They land another record deal, this time with Loud Records, thanks to Mad Life, Scott Free, and Stretch Armstrong. 
and the group that seemed like you could write off entirely is back in the game. But this time, they're doing it their way. And thankfully, they had a record label and a team that let them. Because remember, they're still young, coming off of a failed record. That is the exact situation when a label would normally step in, strong arm an artist, and tell them what they have to do to sell more records. But that's not what Steve Rifkin, but Loud Records did the exact opposite of that. From the A&Rs, Matt and Scott, all the way up to the founder of Loud Records, Steve Rifkin, they gave Mob Deep the freedom to create. I mean, before we even signed, Steve Rifkin let us know that, hey, I'm not here to change you. I like what you do. I like what I heard. I'm going to let y'all take full creative control. Do, do what you want to do. Just be you. This is, of course, Havoc from Mob Deep. And that was the whole premise of Mob Deep signing to Loud. They didn't interfere, you know, in what we wanted to do. That's one thing I can say good about Loud Records. They never came to us and said, hey, we need an a R&B record. Like, you know what I mean? They let us be us, and that's what we did. And, and that was... You know, that was fate. It's just another day. Drowning my troubles with the 40. That's when I got the call from this brown skin shorty. She asked me where's my crew at. Said we can do whatever. She got a crew too and said that we should get together. I said, all right, just call me back in the hour so I can take a shower and gather up the manpower. Then I hung up the horn and I thought to myself that it might be on. Now, a great credit goes to Loud for having that kind of faith in an artist to let them work. If we see a common thread through every record that we've covered here on the Opus is that they are all born out of the label, getting the hell out of the way and just letting great artists create. But there had to be something amazing in those demos because it seemed like everyone who heard them was mesmerized by them. Those demos didn't even stay in New York. They somehow even made it to the West Coast and landed in the hands of the rapper Evidence from Dilated Peoples. And blew his mind from across the country. Mike Karen, guy who became a president or vice president of Atlantic Records or something like that at the time, he had tapes of a lot of the songs previous to them dropping. So I had actually heard, I don't know if they were demos or unmixed versions or whatever, but I had heard a lot of stuff that ended up being on the infamous. It was crazy. It felt like Nas a little bit to me, but way different. You know, it almost felt like maybe Nas was pulling from that, their influence almost because it felt real genuine. But, you know, at the time I was a big Nas fan, so it felt like-minded to that. But I already knew of Juvenile O. But I didn't all the way make the correlation, though. That was the funniest part. I guess I knew it was Mob Deep. Same, I knew it was the same people, but it felt like a, a genesis. It didn't feel... It felt like a, a brand-new beginning. It really had nothing to do with what I had known them as previous. Everyone I talked to says the same thing when they refer to those demos. It was clear. Mob Deep was already there. They didn't need a lot of interference. Just a little polishing. God, there must have been magic on those tapes. Once you heard the infamous demos, you just wanted to do whatever you could to help these two guys keep doing what they were doing. It was like the music was so good on those demos that you were hypnotized into helping just so you could hear more of what they were working on. You, of course, saw that with everyone allowed, giving them creative control. But even more improbably is the presence of Q-Tip on this record. Q-Tip, rapper and producer from one of the most famous rap groups of all time and one of the biggest rap groups of the day, A Tribe Called Quest. 
He heard those demos, and he stepped in to help too. Sure, he gives a guest verse on Drink Away the Pain. He produced one song by himself and helped produce two others, but everyone who was there says the credits that are printed on the back of the album don't do justice to the work he did with Mob Deep. He's there giving Havoc production tips, teaching him how to stack multiple drum samples to make sure they snap. He's giving him advice. He's helping mix huge chunks of that record. He's like a mentor to them. Oh man, it was a blessing because at that point he was the seasoned artist, seasoned producer from Queens. You know what I'm saying? That, you know, Traco Flex had the best beats, you know, in hip hop. You know what I'm saying? One of the best productions in hip hop. So, to have him come along and, you know, assist in helping me produce the record, it almost kind of guaranteed a level of success, right? Now, how could you go wrong with somebody like you to was a blessing. Was a total blessing. Tommy Hill was my nigga, uh. and others couldn't figure. How me and Hill figure used to move through with vigor. Had to sit and plan on how to make these seven figures. Said the brinks is coming through yeah. at Fashion Avenue. Uh-huh. At Tuesday at two, now we got a former crew of motherfuckers who ain't going out like sucker. Told me call, call can I? And all my other brothers. Yeah. I told my sister Walker, who was the smoothest talker. Negotiate the deal with the mother money stalkers. Diesel drove the Beamer, the hatchback, of course. Nordica, a navigate to keep us on course. Hold no. If everything that I've heard about those demos is true, that they're relatively close to what ultimately became the infamous, then it comes as no surprise that all these great people wanted to help see this record succeed. That everyone who heard it believed in them. Because this record, even with coming out in such a crowded field of brilliant rap music, it stood out. Because it's different. It's that same thing that we talked about with Shook Ones Part 2 at the beginning, you know, that urgency that connects this record to the source that drives punk and country and the blues. That emotion that's right under the skin. That wasn't something that the other records hit. At least, not like the infamous. My main thing with that album is the first three songs. To me, it's all about those first three songs. This is Ant. He's the producer for the indie rap group Atmosphere. I spoke to him and the rapper of the group Slug for this. He'll be here from him in a second. I wanted to talk to them because they're another duo in rap who's made a career with that kind of raw emotional honesty. And they both really spoke to that emotion on this record well. How hard it can hit you. And how it sticks with you for years after you heard it. They just, they spoke to me. It sounded how I feel. It, it, to this day, it sounds exactly how I always feel. Now, I have good times here and there in my life. But those three songs are generally my mood in life. Not necessarily the lyrical content, but the way the song sounds. I feel like that all the time. You know, it's like I'm on the, I'm teetering between depression and sadness and maybe a pinch of anger, you know. For me, you know, just I deal with everything with emotion. So when music hits me emotionally, it's just like extra. So I'm just going to have a, 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 an extra attachment. You've talked about the way this record has influenced drums on your own work, you know, with those big snare sounds. But did you take anything away from the way Havoc processed samples or used melody? No, I did not necessarily. But I did, I did tap into my total emotion of my, my depression part of myself. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so I wasn't afraid to explore that area. You know, there was something about 
those mob deep beats too that when i met ant i heard moods inside of ant's music and this is slug the rapper from atmosphere i heard really hard snares i heard all those things that were similar to what was going on on that mob deep record the drums were always hard and the music was never really about like showing off the music was just like about creating a dope mood for you to write some rhymes to that fit that mood and there were songs on that record too where they would juxtapose like something that was a little bit more sunny day-ish with like super hardcore words give up the goods for instance when you listen to that it was almost like that could have been a sunny day kind of a song but they chose to go super dark on it. And that was a thing that like, I feel like Anthony and I often did too, not because it was intentional, but just because it felt natural. It's, it's possible that that particular record may have had a lot more influence on me than I, than I even know. I just know I can accept that. It was, it was one of the big ones for me. And truth be told, there probably wasn't much after that that was as impactful, you know, even to this date, there's a whole, there's a whole like genre of hip hop right now that I consider to kind of be under the, the wings of Mob Deep. You know what I'm saying? It's, and, and it's still going strong. And can't say that about all of my heroes, you know, let's say KRS-One, Chuck D, Rakim. I don't hear their influences in many of my newer contemporary favorite rappers. You know what I'm saying? Whereas I still hear Mob Deep's influence in, in rap. They, 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 they had impact as big as many, but I, I don't want to say quietly, but like their impact was huge, but it's just, it doesn't always get, it doesn't always get pointed at. People aren't always pointing at the impact that they had. And I think what they both said there about the emotion in this music, that's the legacy this album has left. that just can't be overstated. Sure, you still get a lot of dudes rapping like they're super thugs, you know. And sure, there are a lot of dudes out there that still rap about how good they are rapping. But what's much more common with a lot of big names in hip-hop is more nuanced, reflective, flawed self-portrait of the artists themselves. Now, I'm not sure we'd have Future or Kevin Gates or even Earl Sweatshirt talking so frankly about their mental health in a song over such like dark, vibey beats if you didn't have havoc asking you know sometimes i wonder do i deserve to live or am i gonna burn in the hell for all the things i did on that shook ones part two beat for all the influence they've had records like this are still rare and that's clear today and it was clear when it came out and it must have been clear when the album was just a bunch of demos they'd made in havoc's mom's house in queensbridge because you don't come out with a record that's a flop then come back just to get given full creative control from a label. That doesn't happen. You don't get that kind of support from that many people, people like Q-Tip, for nothing. And most amazingly, you don't start this whole process with a demo like Patty Shop aimed squarely at Nas, only to have him later be a guest on the record that follows it. You gotta be making something really special for that happen because that is what happened competition with Nas may have fueled the fire that forged this record but in the end he too must have been seduced by those demos because there he is their greatest competition right there on track four eye for an eye along with another big competitor Raekwon from Wu-Tang Clan they came a long way from the failure of Juvenile Hell didn't they? 
Must have been something in those demos. We in this together, son, your beef is A drug dealer's dream, stash cream, keys on a triple beam, 500 SL green, 95 nickel gleam, condominium, thug dressed like a gentleman, tailor-made ostrich, Chanel for my women, friend, murdering, numbers on your head while I'm burglaring, shank and serving them, what's up to all my niggas swerving in New York metropolis, the bridge breaks apocalypse, shoot at the clouds, feels like the holy beast is watching us, madman, my sanity is going like an hourglass, next week, on the final episode of the season we dive deeper into the impact of this record after it came out both as a piece of music and a powerful piece of social commentary i've got a lot of great guests lined up for that one i'm excited for you to hear it but i want to thank my guests for this week oliver wang of csu long beach soulsides.com he's also got a great podcast of his own about music called heat rocks check that out if you want to learn a lot more about great music from a record collector or professor Big thanks to Evidence from Dilated Peoples and Slug and Ant from Atmosphere. They all have new music out now, so go check it out. They make that good, good. I want to again thank Falk Shock for letting me use his audio tutorial on the Shook Ones Part 2 sample. And man, thanks to Bronco, wherever you are, for having the magic ears to spot that damn sample. Big, big thanks to Matty C. I have so much audio from him. Let's kind of try to squeeze some more of him and Scott Free in next week, because those two, they have stories. Of course, thanks again to Happy from Mob Deep. Still can't believe I get to talk to him. Mob Deep just released an expanded edition of the Infamous for the 25th anniversary. It's got a few rare joints on it, plus the full album, plus some instrumentals. You can check that out on all streaming platforms. It's cool. And if you like the podcast, subscribe, comment, tell your friends, all that. Or you can hit me up on social media directly at Astronautilus. That's A-S-T-R-O-N-A-U-T-A-L-I-S. Think astronaut, and then add A-L-I-S on the end of it. I never tire of talking about music, and this album especially. So hit me up, all social media platforms. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, y'all. For Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. And this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies. Loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.